So as we dive into the word, um, first of all, I just want to, again, as Laura did earlier, I just want to welcome everybody in the room and online, uh, whether you're a part of B4 or whether you're a part of Bridgeport, and we've got some Bridgeport folks in the house also, uh, or if you're tuning in from someplace in Kentucky, uh, we just welcome you today to be a part of what we're doing together as, as a community of faith. We're grateful that you're a part of our community, and I just want to say I'm really grateful for your generosity during this season, uh, and truly, I just want to thank you for that. Uh, I'm also really excited to make an announcement. If you watched our midweek update, then you know I promised an announcement today, some specific details. And so I'm just going to let you know right now at this point in our service that um, we are going to be launching in-person gatherings on um, Thursday nights and on Sunday mornings here at B4 on October 22nd. So that's just three weeks away. And, uh, and we're going to have opportunities for you to register. There'll be more information online for you to do that. So Thursday night, so you can come join us, or you can join us on Sunday morning. And uh, we're going to have lots of details about what that's going to look like. Uh, in addition to that, we're also going to be launching um, services, in-person services at Bridgeport on November 8th. Uh, we're going to take a couple of weeks to get things going here, then we'll get things going there. And, and again, there'll be lots of details that will be on our website. We'll let you know more about what's happening there. And I also um, want to tell you all that I'm also committed, we are committed to making sure that there's a robust online experience as well. So uh, if you want to attend in person, great. We want to make sure that's available for you. But also if you uh, just say, hey, I'd like to attend at home and, and watch online, we are going to ensure that you have an amazing experience online as well. And so both of those things are going to be happening beginning August, uh, October 22nd and then November 8th at Bridgeport. So we're really excited about that. And, uh, and yeah, that's it. We're excited about that. We can just be excited about things like that, right? Um, I think we're all excited about things like that. Amen. All right, all right. So um, now we are entering into our final few weeks in the book of Acts, and uh, we've been taking this really long look at this story of the early church and how it got started. And um, the texts that we're moving into in these last few weeks as we come in for a landing, they have incredible practical significance for us as individual followers of Jesus. Um, there's a lot that we've learned through the book of Acts about who we are as the body of Christ, as people who are living this third way that Jesus presents us in our world. Um, but as we close in the book of Acts, there's actually some very personal applications that begins to emerge from this. And, and I really love um, some of the things that we're going to see even today because we're looking at these people who, um, we're not just talking about theory. We're not just talking ab about um, things that only come up when you're having conversations around faith. We're looking at people whose lives were radically changed. Um, this is the kind of stuff that we're looking at that, that um, comes up when you're moving through your workday or you know, your, your, your home office. It's the kind of stuff that, that comes up or you're dealing with in a relationship with people around you and conflicts that you have or in struggles. It's the stuff that comes up in our current political climate or social climate right now. Um, it's very real. It's very practical. It's very life-shaping. That's one of the beautiful things about the early, uh, the, the first century church. Um, the book of Acts is a biography of this first century church. And what we've seen over and over again in this biography is that these people didn't just change what they believed. It wasn't like somebody came along one day and said, hey, we've got some other ideas that are different than the ideas you were believing, and we just want you to believe these things. And they just simply shifted intellectually from one belief system to another belief system. These individuals, when we look at their lives, um, there was radical change that took place. What they believed influenced how they behaved. Like what they began to understand to be true in the world began to shape their behavior and they began to live lives that were an expression of what they believed. And let me be really clear about this. I don't mean that they just cleaned themselves up a little bit. Like, you know, hey, we got some language that we use occasionally, and we shouldn't use that language, and so, you know, I'm going to stop using those words. That's not what we're talking about. We're not saying that they, they, they believe certain things, and so then all of a sudden they're like, you know, I got a couple of bad habits. I probably should quit this habit or that habit. 
Um, we're not talking about that sort of thing. They weren't just a little more tidy, right? They didn't just, they weren't just, they didn't all start wearing ties and suits. That's not what happened when, when we see what happened with them, right? They changed, changed. What they believe changed them. Their perspectives changed. Like once they got on the other side of the gospel, once they got on the other side of understanding who Jesus is all about and what this whole movement is all about, everything changed. Trusting Jesus meant that their life was radically different. So their perspective changed. Their, their ability to navigate complicated times, that ability expanded. Um, their capacity to find joy, their ability to find peace, their ability to find life in the middle of all of life's circumstances radically increased. Um, their response to circumstances, now they were different. They didn't respond to things, the stimulus of life, the way they used to respond to the stimulus of life. So everything shifts in them. In fact, there's really no better example of this sort of transformation than the, the individual who's the central character in the second half of the book of Acts. Um, first half of the book of Acts, you kind of see Peter showing up a lot on the scene. Second half of the book of Acts, there's this guy named Saul, who eventually we know as Paul, and he is this central figure who is wrecked by the gospel. He is wrecked by the reality of who Jesus is. He not only believes these things, but it radically changes his life. And he lives out the remainder of his life in the implications of the truth of the gospel. What he believes shifts how he, how he behaves. And he's changed. He's changed. There is this intellectual shift, this emotional shift, this practical shift that takes place in him. And I believe the intellectual, practical, emotional shift that takes place in the Apostle Paul, the way we see this transformation take place, the way we see him begin to move and carry himself in a new way, I believe that sort of fundamental, foundational shift is the same kind of shift that God wants in our lives. That same thing that happened in him is what God hopes for every single one of us that are reading about his life, that we would experience this kind of change, this kind of transformation. But I just want to say this. Here, here's, here's what I think is even more puzzling and at the same time makes this so intriguing. We see this shift exhibited in Paul's life in some of the most adverse, awkward, and confusing circumstances of his life. So not only do we see this change that takes place in him, but we see these things being, ex being exhibited in circumstances that were confusing and awkward and, and, and painful and, and hard. So this wasn't just a shift for the good days. This was a shift for the bad days, which to be honest is I think some, that, that's something we need to hear the most. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but I know that most of the time um, when life is smooth and I'm on cruise control and, and I'm not thinking about... Um, you know, all these potential things that could happen in the world, when life's just kind of moving along, I don't have a really hard time finding peace or finding joy or finding meaning or finding life, right? When things are going smoothly, it's not that hard to do. It's when life suddenly takes these unexpected turns that suddenly I struggle the most, right? You with me on this? That's when we struggle, it's pretty easy to be a person of joy. It's pretty easy to, easy to be a person of peace or a person of purpose when life goes the way you expect it to go. It's like, well, things are going the way I want them to go, so obviously I'm, I'm at peace. Obviously I have joy because I'm getting my way, right? All of those things are very natural for us. But what if, let me ask you this, what if in life's unexpected, unwanted, in the most challenging and most confusing circumstances, you and I had a faith that completely redefined our emotions during those times? 
What if we had a kind of faith that, 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 that reshaped our responses to people in those kinds of times? What if we had the kind of faith that changed our perspective during those times? What does it look like? This, this is what, I, what I'm wrestling with even in this text. What does it look like for our faith to leak into a year like 2020? What does that look like? What does it look like for our faith to influence a year where things don't go our way? I don't know if you picked up on this yet. But so far, this year hasn't gone anyone's way. I don't think anyone is saying, finally, I got my way in 2020, right? What does it look like when, you, when, you, when, you, when your faith influences this moment when you realize your kids are going to be home until February, right? Like, we're not going back to school till then. And so what, is that, what happens when your faith touches down in those places? What happens when, when you realize this whole uncertain job market, this may not change for, for months longer? We may not have answers to things. What happens when, when you watch presidential debates and you just scratch your head going, what in the world did I just watch? What happens, right, if your faith leaks into these moments? What happens if your faith leaks into that moment when you open up the news and you see the latest thing that happened in, in, in our city or in another city across the country? What happens? when your faith begins to trickle into those places. The, the, the list goes on. But the question is this, what if our faith, what if your faith was so great that it leaked into the worst of experiences and had the power to transform them? That's the question. A faith like that would be game-changing, amen? Which is why Paul's story and Paul's experience of his Putting his faith to work, even in the most confusing of circumstances, is so important for us to consider. So, so I want to pick up where we left off last week. And if you weren't with us last week, then let me um, just explain that, first of all, I'm going to fly at a little higher altitude this week, and I'm going to go through several chapters looking at some of the high points. But last week we left off, and there were these really interesting circumstances in Acts 21 and Acts 22 where the Apostle Paul was on these missionary journeys. He was traveling around the Roman Empire. He's starting new churches in all, the, all of these cities. The church is growing everywhere. And suddenly he really feels like God's leading him back to the city of Jerusalem. And so um, reluctantly, on other people's part, um, he goes to the city of Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he is met with incredible opposition. He's beaten in the temple and he's arrested or kind of taken away, partially arrested and partially for his own safety by these Romans. And, and there's this um, incredible moment where Paul stops as he's being carried away and he preaches like one more sermon if he can. Like, let me just explain myself to you. And he's got amazing intentions towards these people. Like, like he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to explain himself. And everything that he does, he's being perceived as the wrong thing. Um, he, he's trying to show respect. He's trying to play by the rules, but people are not giving him the benefit of the doubt. By the way, has that ever happened to anybody? Right? I'm trying to do all the right things, and everything I do, it seems like it's being read into. I'm being misunderstood. I'm being misrepresented. That happens, right? You try to do your best. You try to be your best, and people are just set against you. They're reading into everything. That is Paul. He goes to Jerusalem. He's just trying to do the right thing. He's trying to make things right, and everything is going the wrong way. So Paul speaks to this crowd, and he's really trying to explain himself and say, don't be angry. <laughs> Don't be mad, right? That's kind of his explanation. Let me just tell you who I am and let me tell you the good news that I came here to share with you. And he gets done with his, with his message and the people that are after him, they are more furious than when he began. Like now they're just enraged. In fact, um, you can almost hear Paul say, well, that didn't work. Like that didn't go very well. And so the Romans, they literally have to carry him inside their barracks to protect him. And, uh, and if you're thinking that this is a good thing, if you're like, okay, the Romans are gonna protect him, they take him into their little prison, and, uh, and then check this out. Verse 23 of Acts 22. 
It says, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, which is, I guess, what angry people in the first century did, um, the, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Uh, that's an examination that most of us never had in school or at our doctor, but it's a different kind of examination, right? An examination by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So in other words, they're going to beat the truth out of him. Like, tell us the real story. We heard your nice little speech. We heard what you said to them, but we're going to beat the truth out of you, and we're going to find out what's really going on here. And there's part of me that wants to call time out in Paul's story, right? You're telling me that that Paul, who is faithful and committed and passionate, who's doing the right thing, trying to do the right thing at every corner, you're telling me that the conclusion that's being drawn is you're going to get a flogging so we can find out what you're up to. Can I just say this? Um, if If I'm Paul, I'm probably not thinking that floggings are a part of God's plan for my life, right? Where does this fit into any of our normal plans for my life? You know, I think what God has for me in my future is a flogging, says no one in America these days, right? That's not a conclusion we draw. Those dots don't usually connect. Faithful to Jesus, get flogged. That's not the way we think in our culture. So so there he is, and they tie him up, and then they're right about the moment they're getting ready to start beating him. um, Paul says this in verse 25. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And you can almost hear the brakes come to a screech. You can hear the record slide uh, across the needle. This guy who's about to beat him stops in his tracks because the citizen, his citizenship as a Roman, which, by the way, is an incredibly rare thing for a Jewish individual like himself, um, means that they cannot do what they're about to do. And, and, and so immediately, like, Paul sees this, and he's like, hey, I'm going to just talk about my Roman citizenship. These guys stop. They're like, what, you're a Roman citizen? And suddenly, they're a little bit panicked. In fact, the the text, if you read it, um, there's actually worry. They're like, oh, my goodness, like, we're we're in trouble because of what we've just done. Like, don't tell anybody that we did this. I I can imagine them coming in like, would you like cheese and crackers? Something to, like, calm you down right now? Because they realize they've had a major misstep. And if I'm Paul, I'm like, yes, God really does work together for good, right? (laughs) Right? for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? Like, God, you are working this thing out. That's the kind of thing, if you're a person of faith, you expect God to do, right? God comes through in the end and he saves the day. He puts him in this situation, he claims his Roman citizenship, and the pressure's off. Or is it? See, if you read on, um, the story only gets more complicated, The next day, they take Paul to sit before the Jewish council and explain himself, and this is how he starts. It says in verse 1 of Acts 23, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And this is how they respond to him. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. And so Paul reacts, verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now this doesn't go over really well because the guy that Paul says this to is actually the high priest of Judaism. And so in verse 4, we read this. It says, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, (laughs) right? It's this kind of hilarious moment where it's like they're smacking each other around verbally and physically. And then suddenly Paul says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So things are not going very well for Paul, right? He's just been sort of sarcastic. He's lipped off to the high priest of Judaism. Like, this is not the thing you want to do. 
And so here he is, man of God, faithful servant, and things are going from bad to worse. Like every single day that he wakes up, it seems like things get worse. You thought 2020 was bad, right? So Paul being quick on his feet, he comes up with a plan. And this is really interesting. He notices, he recognizes he's a part of the culture. So he realizes there's this internal debate in this council. Um, there's Sadducees and there are Pharisees and there were theological differences between them. And so um, they had an argument about the resurrection, what happens to you after you die. And so they disagreed, these two different groups. And so Paul, almost in an instant, he's brilliant. The apostle Paul was a brilliant individual. He, he strategizes and he presents his argument in such a way that actually pits the two groups against each other. And so he basically aligns himself with the Pharisees. And as a result of that, there's a fight that breaks out now between these guys. They start yelling at each other about their theological differences. So while Paul is on the stand, the courtroom erupts. And now there's just like screaming and fighting and everybody's going back and forth. And, and then at one point, the Romans, they see what's going on and they just decide, we need to get this guy out of here. Like, Somebody's going to kill him. In fact, literally the Bible says that the Romans were afraid they were going to tear him to pieces. That literally it's that crazy in this moment. And so they pull him out and they take him back to the barracks. And then we read something really powerful. That night in the middle of all of this chaos, in the middle of every day, things going from bad to worse, Jesus speaks to him. Now, um, let me just explain, and I think this is good for all of us to understand. We don't know what this exactly looked like. We don't know what this, uh, what this uh, was specifically for him, what took place. It might be very hard to describe, but Paul in this moment has an understanding that Jesus comes near him. You, you may have had an experience like that. You may have moments when it seems as if Jesus comes near to you. You may have times in your life when you know that there are words that are being spoken to you, and these are not just simply words that are coming out. They're, they're not your imagination. These aren't just things that are coming from someone else. You know when God is speaking to you. There are these kinds of moments when Jesus comes near and he speaks to us. And so the Apostle Paul has this kind of moment. He understands this is not a random thought. This is not a random voice. This is Jesus speaking to me. We read about it in verse 11. It says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, which he's just done, right? So you must testify also in Rome. Now, this seems like really good news, right? You're done in Jerusalem. Why don't we go to Rome, right? Rome. I mean, Paul must be thinking, okay, we're getting out of here, right? Be encouraged, Jesus says. Don't give up. We're going to Rome. Like, in the same way that you've had a chance to tell your story and explain yourself here in Jerusalem, take courage. You're going to get to do the same thing in Rome. Um, I, I think about this in terms of um, how I think about my own life. There are times, I don't know if you guys are this way, there's times when I plan a trip and sometimes the trip that's out on my calendar, I know it's there. It sort of pulls me through those, those less joyous days. You know, you're like, I know this day's really bad, but in a few weeks, we're going to be going to Mexico, right? Especially if that's in the middle of winter in the Pacific Northwest, right? Like if you plan a trip to someplace warm, someplace in the, sometime in the middle of winter, there are those dark, dreary days where you're like, I don't know if I can get through. And then you have that screensaver on your computer of where your next warm vacation is. And it sort of compels you to move through those days. I imagine that's how Jesus's comfort to Paul must feel to him in this moment, right? Jesus says Rome and Paul is like, Rome, I love Rome this time of year. It's a beautiful time to go to Rome. You know, Jesus, give me a minute. I'll pack my things, all three of them, and, and let's go. Let's go to Rome, right? Now, I think this brings up a really good question that we're going we're gonna to begin to answer. Have you ever felt like God spoke or encouraged you in some way, and you're like, 
okay, God is with me and you're getting me out of this. You've told me that there's a plan. You've told me that we're doing this. And maybe he's encouraged you to pursue something. You ever felt like God spoke to you only to find yourself questioning whether or not you heard God clearly? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had a time when you were like, no, I, I think I heard Jesus tell me this. I think in this moment of darkness, Jesus encouraged me. I think in this moment of, of a lack of direction, Jesus gave me direction, a, a promise of I'm going to fulfill these things. Have you ever had something like that happen in your life only to then later find yourself saying, Jesus, was that even you? Did you even, I mean, did the circumstances ever turn out in such a way that you scratched your head and you thought to yourself, did, did I hear wrong? Like, did, did, did I not understand? Are you, are you even there? Are you even with me? Like, you knew, right? You wrote it down. You shared with a friend. You carried it in your heart. It was this thing that sort of got you through for a while. Like, we're going to Rome. Like, that's what you feel like he said. Only to find yourself questioning. That's exactly the kind of scenario that Paul finds himself in here. Jesus comforts him, and then... The very next verse says this, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. That's a fairly serious oath, right? And it says there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So Paul has Jesus comfort him, and then the next day wakes up, and he doesn't get released from prison. He doesn't get on a boat bound for Rome. He gets a bounty on his head. 40 men who say we're not eating or drinking until he's dead. Now, a really interesting textual note is that one of Paul's nephews finds out about this. You can't make this up. He finds out about it. He reports it to the Romans, and the Romans come up with a plan to sneak him out to, to a city called Caesarea. Um, the plan works. He gets there, and there's, there's kind of a moment of respite, but then the Jews find out that he's there, and so five days later, they come down there. I'm just going to kind of high-level move through what happens next. At that place, they bring a case against him, and their presentation, literally, they call him, they refer to him as a plague, that this man, the Apostle Paul, faithful, committed, passionate, who hears Jesus say, I'm getting you out of here, you're going to Rome, he is being referred to and he is on trial as a plague. And so Felix, the governor of this region, the Roman official who's appointed there, um, he listens and then he lets Paul respond. And when Paul is done, it says this. In verse 22 of chapter 24, it says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, speaking of Christianity, Put them off. Put these Jews off, saying, When Lysus, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So you kind of feel like there's a moment of respite, right? So he, he sort of knows, like, okay, this Christianity thing, it's not that bad, and I kind of know the relationship with Judaism, and so he puts these guys off and says, we're not going to try you till this other guy comes down, and he says, by the way, take the chains off and let your friends come hang out with you. And you think, finally, right? Finally, somebody is on Paul's side and God is good, right? God's fulfilling his promise. But then you read in verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who sounds like an evil Disney character, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, 
And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years. You need to catch this. Two years. Two years of waiting. Two years of conversation with Felix. Two years of wondering, Jesus, do you remember that time back in Jerusalem when you said, we're going to Rome? It's been two years since you told me that, right? Two years. How many of us have endured something for two years, sort of wondering, like, I thought I heard Jesus clearly, but now, like, what are you doing 24 months later? Not only that, he's been there so long. There's a new governor, and when the new governor takes over, it just says that he left him there in prison. Like, sorry, I really don't know much about your story. I'm just going to sort of leave you here. If you're Paul, how do you even move through these circumstances? How do you deal with this? How do you navigate things like this? But let me ask a different question. And I think this is good for us to wrestle with. Would God allow something like this to happen to someone that he loves and cares for? I mean, you've had some bad days. You've got some people that maybe don't like you. But how about being wrongly accused, falsely imprisoned, and totally misunderstood? Basically left for dead in a prison. Could God let that happen? Would God let that happen? Would God tell somebody, I'm getting you out of here. You're going to go to Rome. I'm, I'm coming here to comfort you. Would Jesus do this? And then you just sit in this space year after year. I mean, could God look at your life and all the stuff that's going on in your life that isn't your fault? Some of the stuff that's going on in your life is your fault. I think we need to admit that, right? Some of the bad stuff that happens in our life, it's because we did it. But there's also stuff that goes on in our life where we go, I didn't have any control over that. This stuff came up in my life. I don't feel like I had any control over that. It just happened in my life. I didn't predict this. I didn't want this. I didn't write this into my script. Can God look at that stuff in your story and, and allow that to happen and, and still care for you, still be with you, still love you? And isn't the temptation for us, like if this were us, if we put ourselves in Paul's shoes, isn't it, isn't it our temptation to say, well, obviously God doesn't care about me. Obviously he's not there. Obviously, and if he is there, then he must have changed his mind or I didn't hear him correctly. See, he doesn't, he doesn't love us. He's taken his hands off the wheel. We're left on our own. Use whatever terminology you want to use. Anything that looked like this in our circumstance would cause us to draw the conclusion that God had left us. And I believe this is where we find the power in this story. Can God be with you in your circumstances even when your circumstances seem to scream the opposite? Any one of us looking at Paul's life would have concluded God is nowhere to be found. God's abandoned him. But if we draw that conclusion, we draw the wrong conclusion. Now, back in 2005, um, Sherry and I, we sold, uh, we sold just about everything we owned. And uh, we packed the few little remaining things up, including our three daughters, and we moved to New York City. And we, um, we genuinely believed that Jesus had spoken to us. Uh, we believed that Jesus had guided us. We believed that Jesus directed us. We believed that Jesus told us to go help plant new churches in New York City. And so um, we burned the ships. We did everything and said, man, we're going to go and we're going to do this. And we threw our life at it. We threw our life saying, Jesus, this is what you told us to do. And then we wake up two years later, and we're not living in New York, we're living in the Northwest, and um, I think every category of our life was in a slump. 
Every, every, every part of our life from our marriage to our finances to, I mean, just every, you just look at everything and you go like, what are we doing? And I remember in that season, two years later, I remember us over and over again, we'd go for walks or we'd sit on the couch and the question would be, did we hear Jesus wrong? Did we hear Jesus wrong? We would look at the circumstances. Based on the circumstances, we would ask the question, Jesus, was that you or was that something in me? Was that bad pizza? What was that? Like, why did we do this? And we would question and we would wrestle. Month after month, we would wrestle with this. But you know, a few years later, um, a few years later, I was approached and, and, and our denominational leaders asked if I would be interested in helping um, start some new churches in the city. Except instead of moving this time, which I was a little reluctant to do for, for very natural reasons, they just said, could you manage it from, from the Northwest? Would you, would you be interested in doing this? And so I began working with churches and leaders in the city. And about a decade later, I've had the opportunity to see what I thought Jesus was speaking to me in 2005 come to fruition. And I remember this one particular moment because it was a healing process, but I remember this one particular moment where it was like the light bulb went on and I suddenly went, oh, Jesus, you, you did speak to me and you did call me and you did fulfill that promise. The problem was that I filled in a lot of blanks about what I thought that was going to look like and how that should go. And it turns out that you were in it all the way through it. Does that happen? Yes, it happens, Right. Does God comfort? Does God say things? Does God give vision? Does Jesus promise things? And then do we wait and do we wonder? Yes. Yes. And the question then arises, what do you do? What do you do if that's your story? What do you do if you say, I heard from Jesus and he spoke to me, your comforter said these things. What do you do if he gave you that vision and then the circumstances around you cause you to question whether or not you heard God or whether or not you believe God is actually with you? Let me offer you a suggestion. If that's you, you decide that you are not going to interpret God based on your ability to interpret your circumstances, and you will put your trust in what he has revealed to you and what he has already spoken to you. That's what you do. Remember, our temptation, our temptation is we want to determine whether or not God is with us based on how our circumstances are going from our perspective. But circumstances are a bad barometer of God's presence with us. Can I just say that? That is not a good way to measure. Like, just because things are going good, and now I know God's with me. When things go bad, he's not with me. That is a horrible barometer. That's what I love about Paul. Paul was so profoundly shaped by his encounters with Jesus that they pulled him through the darkest of days. The most confusing of circumstances. Those things, they didn't look like anything to him because he had this moment when he said, no, no, Jesus, I know you spoke. And so I'm going to keep coming back to that over and over and over again. When, when Jesus told Paul, we're going to Rome, he wasn't simply telling him, hey, here's your future. He was actually revealing something even more powerful. He's saying, I am with you. It's not just where we're going, but I'm here with you. And that presence, the presence of Jesus in his life is what carried him through. And that's what Jesus is all about. Jesus, it's about his presence. It's about his leading us. It's about a relationship with him. It is not some sort of belief system that we hold out in the distance. It is something we experience in the present. Presence is critical. It wasn't a vacation. It wasn't Rome that got Paul through those circumstances. It was the reality that Jesus had spoken, and he just kept holding on to that and said, you know what? I'm not going to let this present moment determine whether or not I believe Jesus is true or not. 
It was hearing him say, take courage. For the same way that you've done this thing in Jerusalem, you're going to do the same thing in Rome. You know, I frequently remind myself that um, if Jesus is the face of the divine, that if God wanted to show us who he is, and he showed us Jesus, then one of the greatest overarching realities that we now know is that God is for us. If Jesus is how God said, this is how I want you to know me, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is for us and God is with us. And if that's the case, that just simply changes everything. It changes everything. Some trial, some dilemma, some decision that's out of your control. You can think about it. You can strategize about it. But ultimately, you can have peace in it because the God of the universe is for you. And so that brings up a whole different question, and I'll close with this. Final thing I'll just mention is this, and it's a question that I want to present to you, and it's this. What does someone who is you do if they're completely confident that God is with them? What do you do if you're completely confident that God is with you? What do you do? What do you do? Like, um, or this is the question that you can ask right now. Today, will I respond to my circumstances? No matter what's happening right now in our world, whatever circumstance you're facing, relational, economic, global, social, political, whatever it is, when you ask yourself this question, today, will I respond to my circumstances like I have to control them and manipulate them to make things happen? Or can I trust that God is in them because he is with me and he is for me? That's the question. And let me just say, there's a promise with this. When you begin to respond to life circumstances as if God is with you, you will discover him even in the worst of circumstances. If you expect him, you will experience him. And it may not change the circumstances. It may be two years, but you will find something. You will find the peace that Jesus is always talking about. You will find the joy that Christians through the centuries have exhibited. You will find the life that is to the full that Jesus promised. So right now, I'm going to invite the band back up to join us, and they're going to close us in a song. And as they do that, I just want to encourage all of us to take a moment and just to consider this, just to, to wrestle with this for a moment. Do you live your life right now with an awareness that Jesus is for you and with you? And, and I think, kind of like I said last week, I think the, the gauge of that is really, um, how are you responding to the circumstances of life, specifically the bad ones? Are you responding to the negative things in our world, the negative things in your life in in a way that reflects a knowledge that God is with you, that God is for you? Let's take a moment. Let's wrestle with that question. Let's, Let's put our eyes, our attention on Jesus. And then in a moment, I'll come back up and I'll offer the benediction. Let's stand together as we sing and respond. in the 
nothing else and nothing else nothing else will do I just want you and nothing else and nothing else I want you to do something with me right now. Um, inevitably, there's, there's a situation or there's a scenario that um, has us spun out. I mean, I don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's really possible for there to be anybody that isn't spun out by something right now. Um, it could be really personal. It could be that Jesus is, is maybe calling you sense that you're being called to step into something it may be that you're, that you're being called to step away from something. Um, and either one of those things stirs up um, all sorts of, of emotions, all sorts of fears and anxieties. Um, it, it may be that there's a, a situation that's going on around you. It may be maybe geopolitical. It may be local and social that just kind of spins you out and, and stirs you up and, and causes emotions and it's just hijacking you. Um, it might be something that's, that's relational. Maybe there's a conflict that you have with somebody right now and then, and it just, it's like you can't seem to find resolution and, and it's just starting to wear on. Um, maybe it's, maybe it's physical. Maybe there's a diagnosis that you've received and something that you're fearful about. I don't know, all of us probably have something that's spinning us out, but what I wanna encourage you right now to do is I want you to take that situation. I want you to take that thing. And I just want you to, for a moment, hold it out in front of you. Maybe even just imagine that you're kind of seeing it from this perspective. I want you to just imagine you're holding it there. This is that thing, that, that scenario, that moment, that whatever it is. How are you going to walk through that differently because of what we talked about today? If what we've just said is true, and I believe with everything inside of my being that it is, how are you going to walk in that moment with that thing, with that scenario, as a person who's confident that Jesus is for you and with you? My prayer is that you would experience the transformational power of Jesus the way that the early church did, the way that the Apostle Paul did, that no matter the circumstance, no matter how complicated that thing is, you would look at it, stare it right in the eyes and say, I think we've got this, amen? And so may you be men and women who have faith-filled courage to stare down the confusing, uncomfortable, 
and awkward, unpleasant circumstances of life. And may you walk in those things as a person who is confident that this God of the universe who sent his son to a cross to show his love is for you and that he is with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Amen. Well, thanks everybody for being here tonight. And for those of you joining online, thank you so much. Um, you know, as Laura mentioned at the top of the service, uh, this week we're gonna have our worship night and there's no registration. We figured if we can do food carts and abandon our parking lot and have 600 people show up and, uh, you know, none of us went to jail for that. Uh, we kind of figured maybe we can do that and worship Jesus. And so we're gonna do that this week. And so we would love to see you. Please join us. Again, I think that's a therapeutic dynamic of the gospel that we are missing and we need in our lives. And so I look forward to you joining us. If you have any other questions about what's going on, check out stuff online and we will see you guys hopefully this Tuesday in our parking lot. See you guys later. Have an amazing, amazing rest of your day.